Aren't you thankful for our Lord Jesus Christ? Please pray with me. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for being our assurance of eternal life in heaven. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to die on the cross for our sins and making a way for us to have a relationship with the Father. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son, uh, Lord, to be our perfect sacrifice. Thank you for that gift. Be with us as we meet, as we dive into your word. Speak to us through your word. We know that it's living and active. Change us where we need to be changed. Uh, Open our understanding where it needs to be opened. Lord, just have your way in us and equip us to bring heaven to our little corner of the world. Thank you for calling us to make a greater impact. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. We are so glad that you're here in worship with us today. A few quick announcements before we dive into God's word together. For starters, uh, we have a bit of a hero in our midst our very own secretary and administrative assistant, Holly, Holly LaPat, ran her first 5K race last Saturday. We're so proud of her. She didn't stop a single time, ran the full three-plus miles, and finished and got the medal. So congratulations, Holly, on a successful first 5K. We're very proud of you. A few other announcements for you today. We won't have our Wednesday night Bible study this week, uh, but we've got quite a lineup for you. Monday night, we have our prayer meetings uh, on Zoom uh, available from any phone that you may have at 6 p.m. tomorrow night. And also through the week, we've got a couple more studies. Uh, We've got our monthly ladies uh, breakfast, excuse me, ladies lunch and Bible study starting at 11 a.m. on Thursday at the church building followed by our men's prayer breakfast. We haven't had one of those in a few months. That'll be at my house on Saturday morning, 8 a.m. So ladies and gentlemen, we hope you'll come and join us Thursday and Saturday, Saturday respectively, uh, for either the ladies' or men's Bible studies. It's going to be a great time of eating and a good time in God's Word. So hope you can join us. Don't forget, coming up in just two weeks is National Back to Church Sunday. It's a great opportunity to invite friends and family to church. So reach out and invite them to join you, ideally in person, uh, but if not, online is a great way uh, to join us for worship as well. Finally, if you're a regular supporter of Impact Christian Church, we want to thank you for your regular giving of your tithes and offerings. You can always give online at our website. You can always text a dollar amount to 84321 or simply write a check and mail it to our P.O. Box at Impact Christian Church. However you choose to give, thank you for your faithfulness and your generosity with your giving. And with that, please make sure you have your Bibles on hand as we dive into God's Word today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 21 as we continue our message series looking at the life of the Apostle Paul. I'm calling today's message, Paul's Arrest and Defense. Not a very creative title, but that's what I'm calling it today, Paul's Arrest and Defense. Back in 1899 and 1900, There was a two-year rebellion in the nation of China. It's called the Boxer Rebellion. Chinese insurgents killed hundreds of Christians in their efforts to drive Christianity out of China. They burned church buildings. They killed Christian men, women, and children. I have heard the following story told about one of those massacres that took place. The story may be embellished a bit, but it's based on historical fact. The story goes like this. As insurgents marched toward Beijing, they captured a certain mission station that housed around a 100 Christians. They locked all the gates leading into that mission station except for one, 
And across the opening of that one entrance, they laid on the ground a cross. And they gave the orders for everyone to come out of the mission and to come to the courtyard out in front. And they made it very clear, anyone who trampled on that cross to get out the gate would be spared. Their lives would be saved and they'd be set free. But those who refused to trample on the cross on the way out of that mission would be shot dead. Terribly frightened, the first seven students trampled the cross under their feet and were allowed to go free. But the eighth student, a young girl, knelt in prayer beside the cross. And then she stood up and carefully shimmied her way around the cross out of that mission and faced the firing squad. Her bold stand for Christ inspired every other student behind her to do the exact same thing. They refused to trample on the cross, and they paid the price with their lives. It really makes you think, doesn't it? What would I have done if I had been there in the year 1900 at that mission? What would you have done? It's a good question, isn't it? And if we ask the next question, what would Paul have done? I think the answer is pretty clear. The Apostle Paul would have similarly knelt and prayed before the cross. He would have carefully made sure not to even step on that cross on the way out of that mission. And before being shot in the head, he would have faced his accusers and his murderers. And he would have told them about the saving power of Jesus Christ. Because that's who Paul was. Paul was bold, he was courageous, and he looked persecution straight in the eye. Well, we saw last Sunday in the first half of Acts 21 that after finishing his third missionary journey, Paul and his missionary companions, including Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, they made their way to Jerusalem in time to celebrate the day of Pentecost, which, as you probably remember, was the birthday of the Christian church. Paul and his team were received warmly by the Christian leaders there in the Jerusalem church. But like the other Christians who had warned Paul about the persecution that was looming, the Christian leaders in Jerusalem were worried that certain Jews who were also from other parts of the world converging upon Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, these Jerusalem leaders were worried that they might attack Paul, that they might try to take him out while he was there. So they came up with a way for Paul to publicly demonstrate that he wasn't anti-Jewish, that he wasn't anti-Old Testament, and that he wasn't anti-Temple. He would pay the expenses for for Jewish Christians to wrap up their 30-day Nazarite vows. The Nazarite vows were grounded in Orthodox Judaism. Those vows showed deep devotion to God and a desire to carry out his commands. So the thinking went like this. The Jewish rumor mill will get squelched if every Jew at the temple can see with their own eyes that Paul is participating in and even funding a very orthodox Jewish vow. It's like if you were accused of driving up and down a street at nighttime uh, looking for stray dogs to hit with your car. You know, how are you going to attack that rumor mill? Well, you could do it in a few ways. Uh, maybe you make a large uh, public financial do- donation to the Animal Protective League. 
Uh, maybe you begin donating some time every week to going to the local animal shelter to help dogs in need. Maybe you go as far as to even adopt one of those dogs from an animal shelter, and you go and you strategically pick out the ugliest dog you can find at the shelter. And you take that ugly dog, it looked like someone hit him with the ugly stick, and you take him everywhere you go so that everyone can hear you say, see this little dog here? He's as ugly as sin. But I love this little dog. I love all dogs. Well, that's a crazy example, but you get the idea. Paul's advisors were telling him, do this act to show them that these rumors about you being anti-Judaism, anti-Temple, anti-Old Testament are 180 degrees from the truth. Well, as Paul helped his new Jewish friends finish their Nazarite vows, things seemed to be going as planned until they stopped going as planned. Well, let's pick up in verse 27 of Acts chapter 21. Once again, we're in Acts 21, beginning in verse 27. I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. Well, the whole city was aroused. And the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill Paul, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him ordered Paul to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul marched, excuse me, when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers the crowd that followed kept shouting, Away with him! As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 400 uh, terrorists uh, into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please, let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. Well, it seems clear from verse 27 that Paul was participating in the final seven days of the four men's Nazarite vow. The first four or five days went just fine, just as planned. But on day six or seven, things took a nasty turn. 
It says from some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. Remember, the province of Asia is where Ephesus was. That was the city where Paul had spent three years during his third missionary journey as he was there in Europe and parts of Asia. He spent three years there. And remember, it was a strategic move by Paul. He wanted for several years to go into Ephesus because it was the capital of the province of Asia. And he knew if he could establish a ministry beachhead in Ephesus, he could likely reach the entire province of Asia because Ephesus was that influential, that strategic. And so that's exactly what had happened during his three-year ministry in Ephesus. The word of God spread throughout the entire province of Asia. So some of Paul's Jewish critics from that province of Asia were also in town for Pentecost. And according to verses 27 and 28, they stirred up the whole crowd and seized Paul, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. Well, here in these verses, Paul's critics level four accusations against him. Now, let me ask you, were any of these four accusations true? And the answer is, well, we have to look more carefully in this text to see for sure if they were true or not. Let's take a closer look at these four accusations in verse 28. Let's put them on the screen here for you. Here are the four accusations against Paul. Accusation number one. Paul, you are an anti-Semite. You are prejudiced against Jews. So we have to honestly ask the question, was Paul anti-Jew? Was he a Jew hater? And the answer is, absolutely not. If you were to go over to the book of Romans, which remember Paul had written just a few months before uh, he actually uh, was here in Jerusalem. Well, it was back in Corinth. It may have been several years, but it wasn't that long. Most likely, I would think it was a few months. In Romans 10, verse 1, Paul writes, My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. You hear that yearning in in Paul's voice and his words there? That's my heart's desire. I want the people of Israel to be saved. Those are not the words of a Jew hater. Those were the words of a man that deeply cared for the Jewish people. One chapter prior to that, in Romans 9, verses 2 and 3, Paul makes it clear that his heart is filled with sorrow because the Jewish people refused to accept Christ and get saved. And Paul, in essence, there in Romans 9, verses 2 and 3 says, If I could, I would trade in my salvation so that I go to hell and they go to heaven instead. Paul was actually so much wanting those people to be saved that he would trade his own place in heaven so that they could go there. Wow. Have you ever been that compassionate for someone that you came to the point of saying, God, I'll go to hell so that person doesn't have to? Was Paul a Jew hater? The furthest thing from it. He loved the Jewish people and would lay his life down for them in a split second. Well, accusation number two, Paul, well, you're anti-Old Testament. It's the second accusation we find there in that verse, verse 28. Is he anti-Old Testament? Furthest thing from it. Paul loved the word of God. 
He was quick to say when he preached his sermons that the Old Testament cannot save you. The law of Moses can't save you. Moses himself can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. But he was certainly not anti-Old Testament. The Old Testament, in Paul's view, was a huge neon arrow pointing to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Number three, he's anti-temple. Yeah, Paul, you're anti-temple. He wasn't anti-temple. He was in the temple when they dragged him out of it. He was worshiping God. He's not anti-temple. Number four, you defiled the temple with Greeks. That's what Paul's done. He's defiling the temple with Greeks. Well, we need to spend a few moments on that one. When the New Testament speaks of the temple in Jerusalem, it's referring to the temple that King Herod the Great had built a few years before Jesus was born. King Solomon's temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians way back in 586 B.C., But Herod had rebuilt the temple much bigger just a few years before Christ was born. Now, in order to understand this fourth accusation, uh, I want you to take a look at this recreation, this model of what Herod's temple looked like. It was destroyed in 70 AD, so very few of the remnants still are around, but we have a pretty good idea from historical documents and descriptions what this temple looked like. So here's an artist's rendering of what it looked like. You're looking at the middle of that temple area. And so here you can see the, the place where the, the priests would go in and go into the holy place where the menorah was, that altar of incense was, the table of showbread was, and finally the holiest of holies in the back of that temple building. Here we have a few courts, and off to the left and right we have other courts. I want to talk to you about those courts for just a moment. Surrounding that mid part of the temple was this large expansive area that was called the court of the Gentiles. As you can see in the background, this whole temple mount was lifted high above the city. And so for from pretty much anywhere in the city of Jerusalem, you could look into the distance and see the temple up perched on a hillside. This temple that Herod had built, this whole expanse of the temple grounds was huge. Um, it covered an area, see I wrote that down here somewhere, approximately 36 acres was this entire temple complex. It was more than twice the size of Solomon's uh, temple area. 36 acres. It was a huge piece of real estate. And it was an architectural masterpiece. It it looked like a slice of heaven as the sun would hit it just right uh, in the morning or in the evening. That whole temple area, as I mentioned, was perched high above the city below. And there were these four different courtyards. And so the lowest of the courtyards was called the Court of the Gentiles. That was that area where anyone could go, Jew or Gentile alike. They could come and they could pray in the Court of the Gentiles. They could come and listen to a Bible study if someone happened to be teaching. Uh, they could come and, and just have a time to reflect and, and be close to God. It was in the Court of the Gentiles where Jesus did most of his teaching when he was at the temple. That way anyone could hear his teaching. It was also in the court of the Gentiles where Jesus drove out the money changers and those that were ripping people off by selling overpriced sheep and and sacrificial lambs. And so the court of the Gentiles, by far the largest area. And then once you cross this little barrier right here, you would go up some steps into the second court, which was called the court of the women, the court of the women. So women who were Jewish and ceremonially clean could go into the court of the women. All Gentiles were forbidden. Only the women who were ceremonially clean and, and Jewish could go there. 
But the, Jew, the women couldn't go any further than that. You went up a few more steps. You got into uh, what was called the court of Israel. It's a little bit higher up. And that's where the Jewish men who were ceremonially clean uh, could go. And then finally, the highest court there just outside that temple building was the court of the priests where only the Jewish priests were authorized to go. So you get the idea. There's these four tiers, these four terraces in the temple area. The lowest, which was still high above the city, was the court of the Gentiles. You go up some steps to the court of the women and you have some more steps to the court of Israel, and then finally some more steps into the court of the priests. Now let's talk for a moment about these first two courtyards. This court of the Gentiles, I mentioned that anyone could go into the court of the Gentiles. The second courtyard, the court of the women, you had to go up these steps. Only Jewish women who were ceremonially clean could go into the court of the women. And there... Along this barrier that separated the court of the Gentiles from the steps leading up to the court of the women, archaeologists have discovered over the last 150 years that there were stone tablets engraved and placed in the gates leading to that stairwell. They were those gates separating the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women. And in those gates were these stone tablets. And these were the words etched into those stone plates at every gate. And this was written in two languages, in both Greek and Latin. And here's how those signs read. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught so doing will have himself to blame for the penalty of death That follows. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that inviting for the Gentiles who want to accept Christ or accept uh, Yahweh? Uh, Not so much. I've told you in the past that in New Testament times, the Jewish people were forbidden by Rome to carry out capital punishment. They were forbidden. That's why the Jewish leaders, when they wanted Jesus to be killed, They had to go to Governor Pilate and get permission to have him crucified. They weren't allowed to do it on their own. But interestingly, there in first century Israel, I learned this past week, there was one exception to that rule. And it had to do with these signs separating the court of the Gentiles from the stairwell leading to the court of the women. It was permissible by Rome for the Jewish authorities to kill any Gentile who dared defile the temple and cross that barrier, going up the steps into the court of the women. Any Gentile could be killed without Roman authority by the Jewish authorities who dared to do that. All that to say, this fourth charge that Paul's critics leveled against him was pretty serious. They accused him of escorting a Greek Christian named Trophimus the Ephesian past the warning signs up the stairs and into the forbidden court of the women, a place no Gentile was permitted to go. Now, was the charge true? No, it wasn't true. Paul hadn't done that, but mobs are rarely concerned with getting their facts straight. So there you have it. Four bogus charges leveled against Paul by his Jewish critics from the province of Asia. Not a single one of them was true, but no matter. They dragged him out of the inner courts of the sanctuary, down the steps, and into the court of the Gentiles, and immediately the gates leading to the inner courts were closed. Now, there's something interesting about the way Herod's temple was built that was something we normally miss. 
when we look at these maps or these recreations of what Herod's temple looked like. Now, I want you to notice in, in this artist's rendering what is in the upper right-hand corner. There's a tall wall there. Uh, what do you suppose that wall is? What does it look like to you? It almost looks like a guard tower, doesn't it? And if you guess that, you would be absolutely right. You see, as we look at what's going on in the northwest corner of that temple structure, here's what you see. This is a fortress built into the northwest walls. It was called the Fortress of Antonia, sometimes called the Castle of Antonia. This fortress, this castle of Antonia, was a military barracks at least three stories high that housed at least a thousand Roman troops. And like it or not, those four guard towers allowed those Roman troops to look down into the temple area and see anything that was going on. They could keep a close eye on any uprising, any commotion, uh, anything that shouldn't be taking place. And so the Jews hated that they were constantly being spied upon by their Gentile occupiers. But it was reality. Built into the temple structure was a barracks complex housing a thousand Roman soldiers. Well, when the mob formed and dragged Paul out of the temple and tried to beat him to death, one of the military commanders named Lysias, we learn his name a couple chapters later, Lysias and at least a hundred soldiers were on the scene in a matter of moments. They used two chains, most likely meaning that Paul was chained to two soldiers, one on each side of him. And when the mob became more violent, Paul had to be carried by the soldiers up the steps leading to the barracks. But before they got safely inside, Paul made a strange request to Commander Lysias. Most prisoners in Paul's sandals would have yelled, Get me out of here! Get me out of here! But that's not what Paul was saying. He turns to the commander in verse 39 and says this, Please let me speak to the people. <laughs> they had just beat the snot out of him. He's probably bloody and bruised, and if Lysias and the Roman soldiers hadn't saved him, he'd probably already be dead. But he says, let me turn and speak to the people. It was a strange request. Paul really loved Jesus. And Paul really loved his fellow Jews. Even the ones who gnashed their teeth at him and wanted to tear him limb from limb. I'm sure the commander was stunned by Paul's request, but he reluctantly said, Okay, you can speak to the crowd. Well, let's pick up in verse 1 of Acts chapter 22 to see what Paul says. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense, Paul said. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in the city of Jerusalem. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way in their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from the council 
I obtained letters to to the brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. But about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up. Be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. I saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and and to beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. Well, here in chapter 22, Paul shared with the crowd the amazing testimony. He didn't backpedal. He didn't point fingers. He didn't accuse anybody or anything. But because of the mob's extreme prejudice, it only took one word in Paul's testimony to set them off. It was the one word, Gentiles. That's all it took, that one word. Listen to how Bible commentator William Barclay describes it. He writes, It was the mention of Gentiles which set the mob ablaze again. It was not that the Jews objected to the preaching to the Gentiles. What they objected to was that the Gentiles were being offered privileges before they first accepted circumcision and the law. If Paul had preached the yoke of Judaism to the Gentiles, all would have been well. It was because he preached the grace of Christianity to them that the Jews were enraged. Well, that really gets the cranks turning, doesn't it? Most people love certain things about Jesus. Jesus taught his followers to love one another. Jesus wasn't prejudiced against non-Jews or social outcasts. He wasn't afraid to touch lepers. He opened the eyes of the blind. He healed the sick. He even prayed for his enemies who nailed him to the cross. Most people would agree these are very admirable qualities. Jesus is a good role model to follow. 
But when push comes to shove, people stop liking Jesus so much when they realize it's his way or the highway. People start feeling guilty when Jesus exposes the flaws in their religion. When Jesus makes it clear that no matter how good you are, you'll never be good enough. No matter how religious you are, you'll never be religious enough. And what really gets certain religious people upset is when you tell them that all their good works and all their religion they've devoted their lives to won't get them or anyone else a step closer to heaven. What? That can't be right. No way. I I refuse to accept that. That's not what my parents taught me. That's not what I believed all my life. I, I, I just can't accept it. I refuse to accept that I've been wrong all these years. And so many people who come, especially from a deep religious background, draw a line in the sand and they cross their arms and said, Jesus, I'm done with you. No more. I can't hear or listen to anything else about you. I can't accept it. Well, I want you to think about this. Anger is a secondary emotion. Something always undergirds anger. Anger always arises from something, uh, be it fear or love or hate or pride. Something always undergirds anger. So where did this mob's anger come from? What undergirded their anger? How about fear? Maybe they were afraid of their precious Judaism being cast aside. How about jealousy? Perhaps. I'm confident that certain Jews were insanely jealous of Paul's success out on the mission field. Judaism wasn't nearly as popular in many cities as Christianity was. How about pride and guilt? Well, honestly, I think these are the two things undergirding their anger more than anything else. You see these Jewish leaders and others that came from the province of Asia, they didn't want to admit they were wrong. It's like the old preacher who wrote in the margin of his sermon notes. When you get to this part of the sermon, pound pulpit here, argument weak. He knew that was a weak argument, so he decided ahead of time when he got to that weak argument, he was going to preach louder and thump that pulpit a little harder because that's what many of us do. We yell louder. We shout stronger when we know we're wrong and we don't want to get caught in being wrong. Well, it seems like that's what many of these Jews from the province of Asia were doing. They went on the attack. They yelled and they screamed louder. They wanted to take the spotlight off themselves and shine it on someone else, anyone else. And Paul happened to be the convenient one to shine the spotlight on. Some of us are really good at this. In some circles, we call this deflection. Deflection simply means we attack and blame another person rather than accepting criticism or blame for our own actions. Many of us are good at doing that. Smoke and mirrors, nothing but smoke and mirrors to take the attention off our shortcomings and us being wrong and distract people into thinking someone else should be the one to focus on. Well, here in chapter 22, Paul stands on the steps leading up to the fortress of Antonia like Stephen stood before the angry accusers 20 years earlier in Acts 6 and 7. 
Paul stands there bloody and bruised from the pummeling he just received from the angry crowd, and he shares his beautiful testimony of how he met Jesus and what Jesus had done in his life. There are three parts to any Christian's testimony, and we can see all three of these parts here in chapter 22. Here's the three parts to Paul's testimony, and these should be the three parts to your testimony as well. Part one, you share what my life was like before I met Christ. In Paul's case, he shares that in verses three through five. Next, he shares part two, how he became a Christian. We read about that in verses six through 16. And then finally, part three, Paul shares how Christ had changed his life. We read about that in verses 17 through 21. I encourage every one of you who is a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, if you've never done this before or if it's been a long time, please do this for me. Put your testimony down in writing. Some of you might say, well, I'm not a writer. It doesn't matter. Put it down in writing. Maybe write it inside the front cover of your Bible. Maybe just put it on a piece of paper, type it out, print it out, and put it inside your Bible. But make sure you put your testimony down in writing. It doesn't have to be long, but make sure you include these three parts. What your life was like before you accepted Christ. Secondly, how you accepted Christ. What happened around that time and how you accepted him. And finally, number three, what your life has been like since you accepted him. Tell about the difference Jesus has made in your life. And I encourage you to spend up to half your testimony talking about the difference that Jesus has made in your life. Oh, do that for me, please. Put it in writing. Even if no one reads it this week, put it in writing. Others will be blessed by that. Who You get to share that with down the road. Well, I want to share with you three life lessons that we can pull from today's passage. Life lesson number one. Even when your life, let me say it this way, even when you live your life with absolute integrity, some people will still misjudge and falsely accuse you. God calls you to live a life of integrity anyway. During his first week in Jerusalem, Paul went to great lengths to demonstrate that he wasn't anti-Judaism. He wasn't anti-Old Testament. He wasn't anti-Temple. But he was falsely accused anyway. If it happened to Jesus and it happened to Paul, why do you think it won't happen to you? Eventually, it will. If you are following Christ well, sooner or later, it will happen to you. You will be misunderstood. You will be misjudged. But you follow Jesus Christ with absolute integrity anyway. Life lesson number two. Whenever someone gives you the opportunity to trample the cross of Christ to save your own bacon, hold fast to the cross and surrender your bacon. Amen? Just surrender it. I ask you again, what would you have done if you had been there in China in the year 1900 and those soldiers had told you to trample on that cross? What would you have done? What would you have done if you were there with Paul in the court of the Gentiles when the mob was forming and beating him to a bloody pulp? Would you stand strong for Jesus Christ just like he did? How would you handle those threats? How would you handle that suffering? How would you handle that persecution? We know what the young Chinese Christian girl did. We know what Paul did. 
May God find you and me faithful to do the same. Standing firm for Jesus Christ, refusing to trample on the cross, refusing to stop telling people about Jesus, no matter the cost. And finally, life lesson number three. Prejudice comes at a high price. It makes us deaf and blind to the truth, the truth that can set us free both in this life and in the life to come. I think Bible commentator John Wade says it so well. He writes, The tragedy of this situation at the temple was that the Jews' prejudice against the Gentiles, or even any mention of the Gentiles, prevented them from hearing the rest of Paul's message. Had he been allowed to continue, there is no doubt that he would have conveyed to them the good news of the gospel. The good news that God had offered salvation to all men, prejudice of any kind, exacts a high price, but none higher than the price that these Jews paid. Let me just say this as plainly as I know how. There is no room for prejudice in a Christian's life. Whether it's prejudice because of the color of someone's skin or prejudice because of someone's social status or prejudice because of who someone associates with. There's no room for prejudice in a Christian's life. Everyone needs Jesus, right? Everyone needs Jesus. Therefore, God has called the church of Jesus Christ to share the gospel of Jesus with everyone. Jew and Gentile, young and old, slave and free, male and female, even with those who in our day and age, those today who are confused about whether they're male or female, they don't know what they are. Even with those, Christ has called us to share the gospel. Why? Well, because we are all creations of Almighty God, aren't we? And God has given us this mission to go to all men, all women, all teenagers, all children, and share this truth with them from the Word of God. You are a precious creation of God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by God in your mother's womb. And God has a perfect plan for your life, a plan to prosper you and not to harm you, a plan to give you hope and a future. He wants you to come to him and discover his plan. And if you are ready to know the one true God and discover his plan for your life, let me tell you about someone. His name is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for giving that young Chinese girl the boldness to stand and proclaim Jesus, even as she faced the barrel of a gun pointed at her. Lord, thank you for giving Paul the courage to turn on those steps. He was facing safety in the barracks in front of him. But instead of moving forward towards safety, he turned around and faced danger. Speaking to that crowd, and pointing them to Jesus Christ. Would you give me that kind of boldness and courage? Would you give us that kind of boldness and courage? And if there's anyone here today who has never made that decision to accept you as Savior and Lord, I pray that they would accept you right now. Coming to you humbly in prayer and saying, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. I admit that I am a sinner. And I need you as my Savior. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And I'm so sorry for turning my back on you all these years. And I choose to begin following you as my Savior and Lord today. Please wash my sins away. Please come into my life. 
And I promise to follow you from this day forward until you call me home to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you've made that decision today to put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of your life, you're almost there. Jesus made it clear in the New Testament when someone was serious about accepting Christ, they were immediately baptized. It's that point in time they made it clear to God, the angels, or anyone that was watching, I'm serious about this decision I've made to trust in Jesus. I'm being baptized, and as I go under the water, it represents that my old life is buried. As I come up out of the water, it represents that I'm raised to walk a new life. If you're serious about making that decision for Jesus, reach out to us right now by phone or by email. You can reach us by phone at 760-246-4100, or you can simply email us at info at greaterimpact.cc. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you about getting baptized as soon as possible. Or if you're just going through some stuff, or some family members or friends you're, you know, are, are going through some stuff, and you need someone to pray with you, please reach out to us right now. We'd love to pray with you if we can. And we'll get back to you at our earliest convenience if you end up leaving a message or email. God bless you as you walk in obedience to His Word as you stand boldly and courageously for Him in a world where so many people come against Christianity. Stand courageously for Him. Speak the truth in love. And look whatever danger comes your way straight in the eye and tell people about the glory and the blessing and the joy and the salvation of Jesus Christ. God bless you.